It's a busy place, you know. But that's what I like about it. I like, I like being busy. <laughs> My name is Anna Tavares. I'm a registered nurse in the operating room. I come into work, uh, check the board, see where I'm headed, and then I'm off. It could be, you know, vascular, neurology, um, pediatrics, like, you know, whatever it is, I just go. I'm just crazy naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like this is a great place to work. You know, it's a learning experience. You're able to grow here. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. When we teach Anne Frank or Ellie Wiesel's Night, the critical question is always, what does this book, what does this story have to do with me? And that's what we want to get to the root of. He was a writer, a printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about a lot of things. So today we would call him a major influencer. Yeah, oh, absolutely. If it pleases you, oh, it's a bonsai. Uh, and that's because in the grand scheme of things, there's a, you know, you can spend a thousand years and follow all the rules, but the tree's job is to make you smile when you look at it. And if it does that, then it's perfect. Uh, and it never has to be anything more complicated than that. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. And I'm David Wright. The International Criminal Court in The Hague has launched an investigation into possible Russian war crimes in Ukraine, but bringing anyone to justice won't be easy. Victims of some of the world's most brutal atrocities know that firsthand. Many have spent a lifetime looking for justice. Some of those include fellow citizens of Rhode Island, whose advocacy helped push through a state law that attempts to make sure that the lessons of their suffering won't be forgotten. Before the measure was passed last year, Michelle San Miguel sat down with survivors of some of history's darkest chapters to hear their stories. I grew up in Bulgaria. We did not know what was going on in the West. When the German troops marched into Bulgaria in 1941, March of 1941, that's when we found it. That's when we realized what was going on. 93-year-old Holocaust survivor Alice Eichenbaum was attending a German school when Bulgaria allied itself with Nazi Germany. Immediately, she noticed her classmates began treating her differently. I was with these kids since kindergarten together. And then when that all happened with the swastika and everything, they wouldn't play with me anymore. And recess, I would stand by myself. And they didn't invite me anymore to their birthday parties. It's no big deal, but it meant a lot to me to an 11-year-old. Eichenbaum then went to a French Catholic school in Bulgaria that accepted Jewish students. A few years later, she and her parents were forced to live near the Turkish and Bulgarian border in a ghetto, where Jews were segregated from the rest of the population. Let me tell you, I went to bed many times hungry, many times, and not knowing what tomorrow will bring. My mother came down with malaria, so she, for weeks and weeks she was sick, and very sick, you know. And I came down with a whooping cough, very severe, no... No doctors were allowed in Jewish homes. 
you know, no medication. So every few months we were sick, you know. And the place where we were, there was no plumbing and no running water. I had to go to the well and bring buckets of water so we had something to drink and food. Her late husband, Raymond, was also a Holocaust survivor. He was sent to Auschwitz, the Nazis' largest concentration camp. He always said that he could never forget the, the scream and the smell of burning flesh in Auschwitz. It was hell, hell on earth. In 2016, in an effort to make sure stories like Eichenbaum's and other victims of atrocities do not fade from history, then-Governor Gina Raimondo signed into law a requirement that public middle school and high school students be taught about the Holocaust and other genocides. But today, supporters of the legislation are concerned that many educators in the state aren't aware of the requirement. Right now, you don't know what's being taught in what schools. Exactly. State Representative Katherine Kazarian was the lead sponsor on the 2016 legislation. Now she's co-sponsoring a bill that would create a commission to oversee Holocaust and genocide education in the state and make sure it's being taught in schools. Why is having that commission important for that education? We want to make sure that the, these teachers are teaching about these materials. We want to make sure they're teaching about them properly. Um, and we want to make sure that we have this commission there to, um, to enable that. Barbara Wahlberg was instrumental in creating and gathering Holocaust and genocide curricula for the Rhode Island Department of Education. She's a teacher at Cranston High School East. She wants educators to know there are free resources available and believes the commission will help teachers spread the word. I think the commission gives us a little bit more clout and influence and it helps us to be, you know, it, it's almost like legitimizing us as educators to go in and say, well, we really can help you and we can provide professional development to your teachers. Wahlberg has been recognized by her peers for her work on genocide education. She's made it her mission to ensure students know their history. I think they have a new sense of how valuable life is, how valuable their family is, their home, their bed the food on their table. It, they really do write uh, journal entries that mention those things, that mention how fortunate they really are and that nothing like this could happen to them. Um, but they do realize it, it has happened to others. Education is the most powerful form to erase systemic racism. Chanavi Chai is the executive director of the Center for Southeast Asians located in Providence. She's also a survivor of the Cambodian genocide. My mom, my aunt, and I survived this war. And this war is tremendous impact because we were starved. We were tempted to be murdered. Chai was seven years old when the murderous regime known as the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia. At least 1.7 million Cambodians died from torture, forced labor and starvation. For years, Chai lived in a concentration camp, desperately trying to survive. Picture 125 degree outside and you have to carry loads of rocks or water, whatever it is, or dig 
and, and then dump it somewhere because they told you and you don't do it the right place and you will get beaten and you're not getting fed. You lucky if one day you get three grain of rice in a bowl of soup, which is just boiled water, just to make enough for you to survive to the next day. How did you survive living in a concentration camp? It takes a lot of stamina. Stamina is the key in maintaining your composure. For me, was in my psyche is that I will not give in and I will not give up. It's not my time yet. That's for me. Not anyone else, but for me, it's not my time. When the Vietnamese military invaded Cambodia in 1978, Chai says the chaos that ensued allowed her to later leave her camp and find her mom and aunt in nearby camps. And then from there, we plan to stay to see if my father were alive. Because the promise to my mom was, you stay here for three months. If I don't show up, that means I'm no longer here. So that promise, we waited for three months. And then we decided that we have to escape out of Cambodia. So all my family were vanished. I have two brothers, two sisters, where I'm the second oldest of five children, and they all were murdered and killed, whether it's through the actual hand or whether through famine and starvation. Educators like Len Newman, Hope Chai's story, and those of other survivors empower young people to work for social justice. When we teach Anne Frank or Ellie Wiesel's night, the critical question is always, what does this book, what does this story have to do with me? And that's what we want to get to the root of. Newman's father and his mother survived the Holocaust. He says teaching about those who suffered and perished at the hands of the Nazis is critical. With that, that students realize that this is not something that happened to somebody else a really long time ago. We are part of a, a world community, and what happens to one of us happens to all of us. For Representative Kazarian, making sure students learn about the Holocaust and other genocides is also about acknowledging her roots and the victims of the Armenian Genocide. I have eight great-grandparents that escaped the Armenian Genocide of 1915. Their stories are horrific and incredible, and I think in the Armenian community, something that is always a concern of ours is that our history will be forgotten. Inside of the North Burial Grounds in Providence stands a monument for the victims of the Armenian Genocide. It's estimated that 1.5 million Armenians were killed by the Ottoman Empire. To this day, the Turkish government has not acknowledged the deaths as a genocide. Kazarian believes that educators must recognize and teach that in the midst of all the brutality, there were also heroes. That's why it's so important to teach about the, the Armenian genocide and all these genocides in the right way because it's more about their government that you know, perpetrated this most heinous crime. Many Turkish people actually helped their Armenian neighbors hide and escape uh, from the genocide. Alice Eichenbaum remembers when she was liberated in 1944 by the Russian army. 
Months later, she says the Americans rescued her husband. Despite what she's lived through, Eichenbaum says she's never lost her faith and doesn't dwell on the hardships. I roll with the punches. I don't fight. I just roll with the punches. I accept things and move on. Good or bad, I move on. Eichenbaum believes it is her mission to get the truth out, an eyewitness account of the unspeakable, made all the more important by those who continue to deny the reality of what happened. Some people don't believe that it was a Holocaust, that it was just a myth. So I want to tell them it was true. I went through it. You know, maybe I was, I was one of the lucky ones because I was in Bulgaria. And the other thing, it should never happen again. Because if you don't tell and educate the people, it could very easily happen again. Scenes from the Cambodian genocide will always be with Chanavi Chai. So too will the story of her resilience. I want my grandchildren, grand, great-grandchildren, to understand what it takes and the strength to look at a murder in the eye and said, it's not tonight. Tonight is my night. Tomorrow morning, I will walk out alone. And I did, and I'm here today. We turn now to a founding father and one New England town's library. Just over the northern Rhode Island border sits Franklin, Massachusetts, named more than 240 years ago in honor of Benjamin Franklin. The great American statesman decided to send a present to the townspeople. While Franklin's gift was not what the citizens had originally hoped for, it would ultimately influence the founding of public education in America. People always want to see the books, and they want to touch them, and they want to know if I've ever touched them. It's, it's almost um, like a sacred um, artifact sort of in town. Reference librarian Vicki Earls says this historic collection of books is so precious it is kept under lock and key in a glass display case. This is it. This is our baby. The town of Franklin, Massachusetts treasures these books from the 1700s because they are the genesis of the first and oldest public free lending library in continuous operation in America. A revolutionary idea at the time, the volumes were a gift from famous patriot Benjamin Franklin. So he was a writer, a printer, a publisher, um, a scientist, an inventor, diplomat, a statesman, um, and he knew a lot about a lot of things. So today we would call him a major influencer. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> he was a rock star. He was so popular, in fact, there are 31 towns in the United States today named after Benjamin Franklin, but Franklin, Massachusetts was the first. And this happened in 1778 when the town was founded. A document was presented to the Mass State Legislature for naming the town, and somebody along the way crossed out the original intended name, which was Exeter, and wrote in Franklin. But there was likely an ulterior motive for that name change, according to longtime historian James Johnston. Well, let me tell you about that. The local preacher of the Congregational Church 
decided that if they gave the honor to Dr. Franklin, that he would give them a bell for their new meeting house. Maybe one of Paul Revere's specials. That would be nice, a nice bronze bell. The bell request for the church steeple was engineered by powerful minister, the Reverend Nathaniel Emmons. Benjamin Franklin replied by sending the now historic collection of books instead. They were loaned out from the Congregational Church and various other buildings around town until the Franklin Library was built in 1904. Why did Ben send books instead of a bell? The ever-clever Franklin explains in the words inscribed on his statue outside the library. Sense being preferable to sound. Well, what he meant was, you know, would they rather know something of value or do they just want to listen to the ding-dong in the steeple? I guess that's what he had in mind. He was rich. He was the rich guy. And he's a guy that could afford to buy a bell with ready cash. And uh, buying a bell was a very big, big project. I mean, they were expensive. You know, you're talking about, in today's money, of spending upwards of $200,000. And the books would cost in today's money? ten to 12000 of the original 116 books Benjamin Franklin gave to start the library, 93 remain. Just pretty good. Um, and I think, you know, the loss along the way is the same as any library book now where, you know, the dog ate it and it fell in the bathtub. One of the biggest part of the collection is the works of John Locke. And this is the time, the time period in history of the Enlightenment. And John Locke, his theories, his political theories were a big part of that. The person that sort of came up with the theories of um, all people having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's one of his concepts. And a lot of what he wrote ended up in the uh, Constitution, almost verbatim. There is another chapter to this story. Turn the page forward a few years, and a Franklin farm boy borrows these books. He was born and raised here. He was mostly self-educated and mostly self-educated through the Benjamin Franklin collection. The self-educated student was none other than Horace Mann, considered the father of public education in America. He believed that all children have the right to education and that education should be tax-supported. Not only public education for white people, but he thought that Native Americans, people of color, uh, women, should have the equal opportunity to secure a good education. And when he became the president of Antioch College, uh, he opened the doors to women, to Native Americans, to people of color, all on an equal basis. And Mann believed all public schools should have a library filled with children's books. Historian Johnston says Mann and Franklin had a lot in common. They were both very innovative people. They were both people who were very prone to thinking outside of the box, if you will. They, they weren't limited by, by the culture of the time. They were thinking beyond the culture of the time. Unfortunately, Benjamin Franklin never got to visit his town in Massachusetts. He died in 1790, shortly after donating the book collection. What do you think, Ben Franklin, would have thought of his namesake town. I think he would be happy, established a very nice home for his books, and I think that he would have been happy to know that his books started something very, very positive. 
I think he was hoping that somebody in this town would prefer sense to sound. I'm sure he was hoping for that. To learn more about Benjamin Franklin and his extraordinary life, you can stream Benjamin Franklin, a Ken Burns film, on Rhode Island PBS Passport. Finally tonight, we take a close look at the ancient tradition of bonsai, which began almost 2,000 years ago in China and evolved into a Japanese art form. Today in Japan, apprentices study for at least three years to learn how to care for and shape the trees. Well, here at home, the New England Bonsai Gardens in Bellingham, Massachusetts is bringing that tradition to us. My name is Ashley and I am the owner of New England Bonsai Gardens. So New England Bonsai Gardens is a full service nursery, which means that not only do we provide trees to customers that are looking for bonsai trees, but some people go on vacation. Um, and when they go on vacation, they might bring their trees back to us for short term boarding. Now we also provide education. Last year, I think we had more than 500 students that came to the nursery to learn about the art of bonsai. We get a lot of questions here. We get how old is this particular tree, which is really difficult to answer unless you've grown it from a seed and you've had the entire history. And the next question is how many trees do we have? And I, I really don't know. It's thousands of bonsai trees. Bonsai being art or science, or hobby or interest, while it is all of those things for sure, I actually have sort of learned to call it a worldview. My name is Philip Hobkirk. I am a plant health manager here at New England Bonsai Gardens. My proper process here is to make trees happy and healthy and beautiful and shiny and vigorous. Anything can be made into a bonsai, any plant technically. Uh, the rule about a bonsai is that it has to look like a tree and be in a pot. And if you want to get really technical about it, under six feet, and I don't even like that rule. Getting into bonsai really does change the way you see the world around you. We have our hustle and bustle, but the tree doesn't care. Uh, the tree needs what a tree has needed for millions of years. It does take kind of a special person to look at these trees and really see the beauty in them and want to be able to care for this plant and see it live. I mean, the goal is for these trees to live their full lifespan of hundreds of years. So, I mean, that's overwhelming a lot of the time. So it, it, it takes a real special person to really want to get into this and start taking care of these trees on a daily basis and pass it on to the next generation. I'm Pete Olson. I'm a bonsai professional here. I have a tree at home that's actually the same age as me which is kind of nice, so I feel like we've grown up together, if you will, and then I take care of it on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, and then you come across a tree like this. It hasn't been in a bonsai that long, but the tree itself is somewhere upwards of the range of 900 years old. A lot of people in the U.S. in the mid to late 80s got into bonsai because of the original Karate Kid movie, and that created a whole boom in, in I mean, it created the boom in, in the whole industry. I'm Joel Mullen. I work here at New England Bonsai Gardens. Like, I think everyone that works in bonsai, I do just about everything from, you know, sweeping the floors to working on our, you know, $20,000 trees. So basically, we'll, we'll take a tree from a nursery pot, get it into a bonsai pot, um, and then from there, it, it's, it's mainly watering, fertilizing, sunlight. Um, th those are the three things that you do have to balance. Um, it's harder for some species than others. Um, 
And then once you've kind of got that tree recovered and healthy after that repot, you can then wire the tree, you can style the tree. The main things with, with a bonsai tree are repotting it routinely and pruning it routinely um, to keep its shape. That, that's how we keep them, you know, dwarf um, or, or at least small. You're not gonna learn how a tree grows or how a plant grows um, in a month, in a week. You, you, need, you really need a full year to, to, to see how that tree grows. That's one of my favorite parts of, of this art form is, is figuring out the thousands and thousands of tree species and, and how they grow and how we can show them in, in their natural beauty. There's no bonsai professional or even anyone who's remotely decent at growing bonsai trees that hasn't killed a bunch of trees. You know, for the most part, the, the demographic over the last, I mean, probably, I don't know, however long we've been doing bonsai in America has been 50 to 75 year old white men. With the pandemic, there, there's been an uptick in um, younger people, for sure, of all genders, nationalities. That's great. Bonsai for everyone. That's kind of a misconception, is that every tree is expensive. There's, there's a tree for everybody, I would like to say. Um, but you've got to remember that each and every one of these trees is watered daily and then it can go through a refinement or a styling process whereby somebody might spend hours um, curating that tree. They'll be wiring it, they've got to repot it, so all of that labor and the time, um, obviously the tree is significantly nicer um, and it looks styled, but there's a cost associated to that. If it pleases you, oh, it's a bonsai. Uh, and that's because in the grand scheme of things, there's a, you, know, you can spend a thousand years and follow all the rules, but the tree's job is to make you smile when you look at it. And if it does that, then it's perfect. Uh, and it never has to be anything more complicated than that. Our thanks to Abby Oldham for that report. While taking care of bonsai trees can be painstaking work, the health benefits can be significant for people and for the planet. They include purifying the air, lowering stress levels, developing patience, and sparking creativity. That's our broadcast this evening. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Wright. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. Or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Good night. <laughs>